Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. How are you today? Grateful to have you here with us, whether you know, all of you that are here, but there's also some folks maybe on Facebook watching too. Glad you're here with us for a new series. That's a great time to participate because the series is just a conversation. Starting a brand new series called Right in the Eye. Some pastor friends of mine recommended it from North Point Community Church. And it starts with, as we start this brand new series, it starts with an outrageous story. An outrageous story that's one of the most outrageous in all of history, like ancient history, certainly in the Bible, certainly in the, New, uh, the Old Testament. It's a little bit long, it's a little bit complicated, so if you find yourself like kind of losing track maybe of what we've talked about, you can go onto our website, we're going to have this service posted there as soon as tomorrow, maybe even this afternoon, or maybe as you're listening to this, you're kind of going... Man, I wish my husband would have heard this. I wish my sister-in-law would have heard this, and you can share it with them that way as well. But this series comes from an Old Testament book of Judges. Judges is a narrative about the history of ancient uh, Israel from about the time when they entered the Promised Land until they finally got a king. So think about Moses delivering the Israelites, let my people go, that whole thing. They get to the promised land, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, they step into the promised land. This is that period of time when they're in the promised land, but before Israel gets a monarchy. So think about King David, King Solomon. That's when this takes place. It's a time when Israel is a commonwealth. So think about the original 13 colonies, right? There is no king necessarily. There's no central government. But they did have common ancestry. They had a common religion. They had a common language. But they were 12 distinct tribes. Now, why were they 12 distinct tribes? Well, there's Abraham was kind of the the great father of the Israelite nation, and Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 what? 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes, kind of like many nations uh, of Israel. So in this book of Judges, we have the 12 tribes occupying what we would understand to be kind of the holy land, and because there's no king, They were supposed to view God as their king. God gave them some laws, and they're supposed to obey them. But what what happened was God would raise up some judges from amongst these tribes. Now, when you think about a judge, like I have a picture that comes to my mind, like like a gavel, a courtroom. I don't know why, but I always picture them wearing one of those British wigs. They they don't do that here, but I I picture, I don't want you to think about a judge like that. It's not a judge like that. Think more of like a tribal chieftain, a tribal chieftain. And what happened would be that this tribal chieftain was, only had the authority to kind of distribute God's law. And in some cases, they would step in and they would deliver a tribe or the whole nation from some 
outside threat to that community. Because here's what would happen. The nation would abandon God's laws because much like you and I, we have something common with them. Is that We don't like for people to tell us what to do, do we? We don't like that. Besides, you know this law that God gave them, this was like hundreds of years ago, some guy who's not even our leader anymore, and it was ancient and it was far away. What does that have to do with us and our current culture? So basically, everybody did whatever they wanted to do, which meant that they would go through this cycle. In fact, when you read the book of Judges, it's this regular cycle. They would disobey God's law, and then this disaster would result. And then they would cry out to help from God, and then God would send a deliverer. And then they would go back, and they would disobey again, and then there would be this disaster, and then they would cry out to God, and God would deliver them. And then they would say this, hey, you know what? We're never going to do that again. We are not going to do that again. We're not going to do that again. Does that sound familiar at all? Here's the interesting thing about the book of Judges, you know, even if you're not a religious person, even if you're you know, like a Christian person, this is something we all have in common, that at some point in our lives, we've disobeyed something. Maybe you grew up with like religious laws or laws of your household. Maybe you even disobeyed your own conscience, Right? And your conscience said something like this, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then you would do it, and then there was this disaster, and then you're like, oh my gosh, I've gotten myself into this mess because you've disobeyed your conscience. Maybe you've disobeyed what your parents wanted you to do or what you thought was this religious law or whatever it was. And then you're like, I need someone to help me. And then someone came along and they bailed you out, or they helped you, or they checked you into rehab. Somebody came into your life, and then you said this, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. And you didn't for about a week. <laughs> and, then, and then you started doing it again, right? And you did it over and over again. That was this nation of Israel for a period of about 330 years. They would get into trouble. God would deliver them from trouble. And then they would get into trouble. And then they got delivered. And they got in trouble. And they got delivered. In many ways, this book kind of reflects you and I, doesn't it? But at the very end of this book that we're going to study all the way up till Christmas, there's this outrageous story. And it's a little bit long. It's a little bit complicated. I'm going to try to simplify it for us. But this is how it ends, and it tells us just how bad it got in the nation of Israel. Just how bad it got for a group of people, a community, a nation that thought, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do I'm going to do what I think is right. You do what you think is right because what's right for you isn't right. What's right for me and what's right for me isn't necessarily what's right for you. And so we're all just going to mind our own business. And so for 330 years, that's what the nation did. And it was kind of this up and this down and this up and this down. And it just kept getting worse and worse until it devolved into kind of this cesspool kind of story. And it's just horrible. And it's hard to believe, and yet that's where it landed for them. And I just kind of want to tell you that story here as we start 
this study. So remember, there's 12 tribes in, in Israel, and each tribe would have like tens of thousands of people. Some historians think maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. And they all lived in kind of different regions of what we would understand to be the Holy Land today. And the story begins like this, that there was a Levite who lived in the region of Ephraim or a town of Ephraim. Now, we, we don't know his name. We just know that he was a Levite. Now, the Levites were people that were supposed to be set apart to like serve in the, in the tabernacle, to serve in the synagogues and the temples. Like they were supposed to be holy people kind of set apart. But this guy from the, the country of Ephraim, it says that he kind of got himself a girlfriend, and all throughout the story, it calls her a concubine. It's, it's kind of like a girlfriend, it's kind of like a servant, kind of like a wife. You kind of fill in the blank there, but the whole idea was that this concubine was, this was an idea that they would have gotten from from the Canaanites. These were the people who occupied the promised land before Israel went in. It was their idea, and they just adopted that. They were supposed to stay away from it, but they just brought that into their culture. And so this guy goes down to the region of Bethlehem in Judea. He goes down. He finds this woman. He brings her back home. They live together for a while, but then she was unfaithful to him. And he finds out and then she finds out that he found out, and so she went running back to Bethlehem to be with her family. Some time goes by, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get my concubine, and I'm going to bring her home. And so he travels south. He's a Levite traveling through the area of the Benjamin tribe, the Benjamites. And he goes down into Judea, into Jerusalem. He shows up at his father's house, and at her father's house, and he says, hey, I've come for my woman. And the father's not really excited about this, and so they kind of get into it. You know, it's really weird. You guys should read your Bibles. It's fascinating stuff. And the dad, you know, who's not really a father-in-law, he's kind of like a concubine-in-law, but they call him a father-in-law. He's not real excited about her going back with him because she's like a servant. She ran away, and like those things are punishable. Didn't really want that to go down, so... This was his big idea. He says, well, maybe I can slow them down as they leave. You know. And so he's like, well, why don't you come and drink with me? And so he got him like hammered, plastered, drunk. And so that the next day, you know, he's got a hangover. And it's like he's wanting to get on the road, but now he can't because he's getting over this drunkness, you know. And so he's, now it's noon, and the de- father-in-law is like, well, don't leave yet. You know, just let's drink again. So he gets him to do this like time after time after time. And no, eventually... The, the Levite says, I've had enough of this. And so he gathers, it's late in the day, he gathers his concubine, he's got these two donkeys with him, he's got this male servant, and they start making their way home. But they leave so late in the day. They're on this journey, the sun got, starts to go down, and they end up in a town called Gibeah. Now Gibeah is in the middle of, of this tribe of Benjamin, and when he gets there, he goes to the town square. And this is just the way that it worked back then because there were these laws of hospitality. You know, they were villages. They weren't big cities. There weren't restaurants. There weren't hotels or motels. And the way that it would work is you would go to where the well is in the middle of the town and you would just kind of wait there. And the law was that the people in the community would see that and they would take care of you. They would bring you in. But this guy is there and it's him and his concubine and his male servant and his two donkeys. And 
They're there, and the sun goes down, and nobody extends them hospitality. Nobody welcomes them in. And it's getting late until finally this guy comes through the city gates, and he sees him there, and he finds out, hey, you're from Ephraim. I'm from Ephraim too. And so he went, and he took him, and he said, well, you come with me. You come stay at my house tonight. And so he does this, and this is where it gets a little bit weird because the author tells us that late in the evening when they're eating and they're done drinking, a bunch of wicked men show up. They call them worthless men. They show up and they bang on the door. And they say to the man living there, this is what it says. It says, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with them. Now this, this isn't like a gratification thing. This is a humiliation kind of thing. This was something that the Canaanites of the area, this was something they practiced, and then it actually kind of migrated into the Roman and the Greek cultures after that. They were pounding on the door, and this is what they were saying. We don't like strangers. This is our town, our community. We don't want strangers here. Nobody invited them. We're going to teach them a lesson. And then when they leave, and they'll say, hey, Gibeah, stay away from Gibeah. That place doesn't like strangers. But this is what the owner of the house says. The owner, owner of the house goes outside, and he says, no, my friends, don't be so vile since this man is my guest. It's the laws of hospitality. He's in my house. He's under my protection. He's under my roof. He say, don't do this outrageous thing. Then it gets even stranger. He says, look, here is my virgin daughter. This guy's concubine. Huh? I'll bring them out to you now, and then you can use them and do whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. It says, but the men wouldn't listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. Now listen, I, I, won't, I won't even put up what the rest of this verse says because it's so horrible. It's horrible, horrible, horrible what happened. The next morning, the Levite gets up and he opens the door and there lays his concubine and she's dead. He throws her over the donkey and starts making his way back home with his male servant and they make their way to Ephraim. And he's angry, he's so angry. The laws of hospitality were violated. His concubine was murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. He almost lost his own life, and so this is what he decides to do. He decides, I'm going to write a letter, and I'm going to send it to all of the tribes of Israel. They need to know what happened here today. So he outlines the story and he hires a bunch of servants to go and take this letter to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he thinks to himself, well, wait a minute. Nobody knows who I am. They're not even going to listen to me. So this is what he does. He takes her body and chops it up into 12 pieces and sends the body parts with the letter. This is so weird, guys. You should read your Bible. It's, it's outrageous what's in here. 
And he sends them out to the nations of Israel. And so two or three days later, you know, the mayor of every city is like, mail time. Hey, you get a letter. Here's a package. And they, they open it. And so one person's got an arm and the other person's got a leg and the other person's got a head. And they see this and they read this letter and this just horrible, horrible deed that's happened. And the nation is outraged and it's like oh my word we have sunk to an all-time low it's not just the philistines it's not just the canaanites this is something we're doing to one another and so they gather together and it says that all who heard this story they saw the like the body parts that was attached to it is so we've sunk to a brand new low in judges 19 verse 30 this is what it says it says such a thing has never been seen nor done not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. And so these messages went back and forth and back and forth, and finally they decide, we're going to put an army together, and we're going to show up at the city of Gibeah, and we're going to demand, hey, you hand over these worthless men, these perpetrators, and justice must be served. And so... They sent out this, this message across the nation, and this is what happens. Judges 20, verse 1. It says, Then all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and the land of Gilead, came together as one, and they assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. So what happened is they sent out this message. They said, Every tribe, every city, you need to send your fighting men to come. And they assembled this this army, and we're going to show up in force, and we're going to demand that justice be done. And then all the fathers got together, and all of the fathers said, hey, we're never, we're making an oath, we're never going to marry off our daughters to Benjamite men. We're never going to let that happen. And so they marched in force, they showed up outside the gates of Gibeah, and they demanded, you got to send over these worthless people. But the thing is, those letters also showed up to the tribe of Benjamin. They got that, and so they assembled their own army, and they said, no, 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 we're not going to hand over these men because this is our land, they're going to be judged by our laws, we're not going to hand them over. So you had this armed conflict with hundreds of thousands of people coming to battle, about to break out, and sure enough, the 11 tribes of Israel attacked the Benjamites outside of Gibeah. But the Benjamites were super-duper skilled, and so they actually like kill all of these Israelites from the 11 tribes. The first day, the Benjamites win. And the second day, the Benjamites win again, just killing just thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of these Israelites. And then the Israelites got this idea. They said, I know, here's our battle plan. And so what they did was they went with a smaller force and they attacked Gibeah. And, and Gibeah, uh, the, the Benjamites were like, we're gonna, we got this, we've done this before. And so they sent out a small force to go and attack these 11 tribes and as they did that the Israelites had some some troops go into the city of Gibeah and light it on fire and when that happened they were ambushed and the Benjamites were destroyed but as they were in the city the Israelites were so angry at all the people that had been killed from their tribes just got this bloodlust and they burn everything and they kill every man woman child and animal in Gibeah and then they go from city to city to city until all of the Benjamites are wiped out but a portion 
portion of the army escaped into the desert. About 600 men of these Benjamites were out into the desert, kind of hiding for their lives, as you could imagine. They didn't know what was going to happen, and so after this bloodlust, you know, this smoldering, horrible-smelling battlefield wasteland, and everything's dead, and this bloodlust finally it diminishes and the adrenaline diminishes. The 11 tribes of Israel have this moment and they think, oh my goodness, what have we done? We just wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. Now it's not the 12 tribes, now it's the 11 tribes of Israel. And they repent and they say, God, we're sorry. There's, no, there's been this genocide. We've eliminated an entire tribe and we've killed everybody and we've burned down every city. And then finally someone says, well, actually, there are 600 Benjamite soldiers hiding out in the desert. Maybe we can go coax them back. And someone else raises their hand and says, well, that's great, but they're all male. And we all made an oath that we were not going to let our daughters marry a Benjamite man. What are we going to do? And then someone else raises their hand and they say, well, was there anyone that was non-committal across the 11 tribes towards this battle? And they said, well, Jabesh Gilead, is there anyone here from Jabesh Gilead? And no one raises their hand. And they say, well, they didn't send anybody. And so they put together a smaller army. They go to Jabesh Gilead. And there they have this plan. We're going to kill every man, woman, and child, but we're going to save all the young girls, bring them back. And so they go in and they do this. And they bring back all the young girls and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them as wives to the Benjamite soldiers so that they're not wiped out. Isn't this fascinating? Like you read your Bible. This is just sickening stuff. This is crazy. Here's what they do. They do that. They raise the whole city. They kidnap all the young girls and they go to the soldiers out in the field and they say, we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. Bad news is we've killed all your brothers, sisters, moms, and your whole city, everything's weighed lace. But the good news is we've got some wives for you. But the problem is there's 600 of you, but we only have 500 wives. You know, I'm not even sure if they're going to be compliant with this whole situation. You know, I don't know if they want to be married off like that, but not everyone gets a wife. And so someone has an idea, and they say, well, there's this festival in Shiloh where all the young maids go out into the field and they dance. And so why don't we let those men that don't have wives yet hide in the woods around the field and then they can go and they can capture themselves some women. And then, and, and here's the deal, like, the fathers actually didn't give them away, so they haven't broken their oath, you know, they've just kidnapped them. Everyone gets a wife, and so that's what they do. These 600 guys basically throw these women over their shoulders back into the smoldering ruins in the land of Benjamin where they can finally rebuild. And that's how the book of Judges ends. no heroes there's no goodness you know some some of you probably grew up in a christian home and your parents told you bible stories i bet you they never told you this one did they hey dad tell me the story about the concubine and the chainsaw remember that? oh no that's a halloween bible story we're gonna save that for halloween you know, the, the writer of judges who we believe to be samuel gives us this unbelievable story and he makes a final comment at the end of the book of Judges, verse 25 of chapter 21, and this is what he says. He says, in those days, 
there was no king in Israel. And because there was no king, there was no final authority. There was no one to impose the law of God on the nation. In those days, there was no king of Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. To put it a different way, you know, there was no binding moral consensus. There was nothing that said, hey, this is right and this is wrong, so people just followed their own moral compass. Everyone did exactly what they thought was right. And what's so fascinating is if you go back over this story and at any point in time, if you were to just drop in outside of context, each one of these characters at every single point along the way did exactly what they thought was the right thing to do. The men in Gibeah were like, hey, this is our town, right? We have the ability to let people come in or not come in, right? That's what we should do. Yeah, we should do that. We have the right, don't we? Yeah, we do. We should go and we should teach that guy a lesson. We should, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should do that. And we're going to protect our city from strangers, and we're going to humiliate him to the point where no one's going to come back here again. So they're pounding on the door, and the Levite is like, well, honey, you were the one that was unfaithful. Not real sure what's going to happen to you. Hard, hate to do this, but here, you take her. Besides, you know, it's your father's fault, too, because had we, had we left on time, we would have made it through this town. We would have been completely unharmed. And, and after all, I mean, she's just a woman. She's my property. She's the one that got me here in this mess, and she should have to deal with that. And then, and then she gets murdered, and the guy's like, well, no one's going to listen to me, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to chop up her body, and that'll get people's attention. That seemed like the right thing. And so the whole nation comes together. They demand justice. The right thing needs to be done. And the Benjamites are like, hey, wait a minute. That's your laws. That's not our laws. We shouldn't be bound by that kind of thing. So we're going we're to defend ourselves. And the, and the rest of Israel thinks, well, it's the right thing to do to teach these Gibeites a, a lesson here. And so we're going to teach the whole nation a lesson. And it's the right thing to do to go find these wives for some guys out in the desert. And and you know, Jabesh Gilead, they didn't even commit anyone to the fight, so it's the right thing to do that they should be taught a lesson in the middle of all of this. I mean, at, at every single point, if you were to drop in on that, they were making the right decisions in their own eyes. And yet, when you look at it, it's absolutely chaotic. And then here's the thing. Kinda like, as we talk about this, there's some of that inside y'all and there's some of that inside me there's something inside of me that says wait 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 i'm gonna do what i want to do when i want to do it with whom i want to do it and no one can tell me what to do because what's right for me is what's right for me and my family and you do what's right for you and your family in fact isn't that kind of like the underbelly of the american dream I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I mean, that's, that's the American dream. I am autonomous. Now, listen, because we're civilized, because we're Americans, we add a little phrase to that. I can do whatever I want to do as long as nobody gets hurt. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Like, we live in a culture where marketing 
where music, where media, it just programs, it reaches into our heart, into our conscience, into our mind, especially into our emotions, and says, you can do what you want to do with whom you want to do it with, and nobody can tell me what I should do as long as nobody gets hurt. But there's a couple problems with this, because only the super rich can afford this. Because after a while, when you do whatever you want to do, Whatever, whenever you want to do it, after a while, you're going to need an attorney. <laughs> In America, you're going to need a, a team of attorneys. And the other interesting thing is that the only people who literally preach this message are like the entertainment people, the people who write the movies, the people who write the songs, who develop the narratives. They're the ones creating the films, and it stirs something inside of us. And we're like, yes, I want that to be me. I'm going to live that dream. No one can tell me what to do. Hear me roar. I want to have that kind of freedom, right? But in the real world, you never see real world people who have real world experiences preaching this kind of message. Like, you never have a fifth grade teacher dismissing their children on a Friday and say, children, I hope you have a great weekend. Before you go, I just want to remind you, you do whatever it is you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whom you want to do it, and, and no one can tell you what to do in your life. That's your secret to happiness. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. A CPS worker doesn't show up and say, you know, I know you've lost your children, and but the way to get that back, the way to get your kids back is to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whom you want to do it. If you just do that, no one can tell you what to do. If you just do that, you'll get your kids back. No parole officer, no judge says that. No one who lives on the consequent sides of those sorts of actions say that because they know better. Now listen, th there's another reason why ultimately this doesn't work. Because when you do whatever you want to do, it is might makes right, and I am stronger than you, so I'm going to get my way, which is why this always works out better for men than it does for women. You ever notice that? That in a world where men get to do whatever they want to do, that women always become possessions and profit centers? You know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't God's idea. God's idea was that man and woman would be made in his image equally worthy of love and respect. But the Canaanites were the ones that said, hey, this is to be owned. A woman is to be possessed. When men do what's right in their own eyes, when there's no king, when there's no moral consensus, when their moral right makes, might makes right, women always suffer. And the other reason, the other reason that this doesn't work is because it's impossible. Because when you do what's right for you, eventually, you're going to hurt you. And you might want to write this down because this is really challenging, but I, newsflash, like you are somebody. And when you hurt you, you are hurting someone. Think about this. This thing that has mastered you, this debt, this relationship, this thing that you just can't figure out how to get, get out of, this relationship that you just don't want your, your wife to know about, you don't want your husband to know about, and it's mastered you, and every day you're like, how am I gonna end this? How am I gonna get out of this? And maybe it's this alcohol addiction, this, this drug addiction, and it's mastered you. It began as an expression of your freedom. 
and you said, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and now you can't do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it. Because you've been mastered by the very thing that was an expression of your misguided freedom. And you've hurt you. Jordan Peterson is a popular psychologist and some people really love him and some people really hate him, but he said something I thought was really insightful. He said, you can never get away with things. He says, in my clinical psychology, you never get away with things. And someone thinks, I've gotten away with this, this you know, decision I made when I was younger, but then they find themselves 10, 15, 20 years later unpacking this string of hurt and you go, where'd that come from? And that what I'm experiencing now came from this other thing that happened. And then you trace it back to this decision you made when you said, no one can tell me what to do. I am a man, I am a woman up unto myself. But it's not just you that you hurt. Come on, when you, you hurt the people that you're with, you hurt the people that love you. That's why parents say this. It's why parents say, hey, be careful what friends you hang out with. And you're like, oh, I'll never do this thing when I hang out with them. I'll never do it. I'll never do it. But then you're like, yeah, but if you're with them when they do it, you're going to get hurt as well. And listen, teenagers, <laughs> you can't possibly hurt you without hurting someone else because you have parents that love you. If you have a husband or a wife that loves you, you can't possibly hurt you without hurting someone else. It's, Im it's impossible. And you can't do what you want to do when you want to do it and not hurt anyone. And then how about this? How about the people that come along after you? Because I know, I know y'all, and some of us are pretty dysfunctional. Some of us have some quirks in our lives, and we would say, like, where did this behavior come from? Like, why do I keep running back to this thing? And you trace it back, and you realize that it, it's because, well, my dad always just reacted that way. He always just blew up at us. Or my mom always would just run away and withdraw. And so I just kind of learned it from them. And you look at your parents and say, well, I kind of got it from, from them. That's where my dysfunction comes from. And at some point along the way, your mom or your dad said, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and it's no one else's business. But the problem is, they forgot to factor you in. And they would have probably said, I'm not hurting anyone. But it's hurt you every single year of your life. See, it's a myth. It's a myth. It doesn't work. And anyway... Why would we aim for the bottom of the barrel? Why would we do that? Why would we aspire to that? I mean, I can do whatever I want to do. It's always going to evolve into chaos, and no one can stop me. Why would you even want that to be your aim? Where's the win in that? How can we never hear this? You know, I should be able to do whatever I want to do as long as it helps somebody, <laughs> as long as it benefits somebody. Like, why do we never say that? Why don't we say, how can we harness our passions, our desires, our abilities to make the world a better place? Why don't we look up rather than look down? Why is that? And then in the end, all of us are hypocrites because we all end up calling someone to bail us out. 
and your dad who used to say, you know, you really shouldn't get into that, you know, and you just cross your arms and you're like, dad, you just want to control me. Why are you being, you know, like this? You're just being an ogre. And then eventually you have to call your dad and be like, hey, dad, I'm in the police station. and It's not a field trip. Can you come bail me out? Or ladies, your parents are like, stay away from him. He is up to no good. He's going to break your heart and leave you stranded. You're like, mom and dad are just so dumb. They're so old-fashioned, and they just want to control my life. And then who do you call when you need somewhere to stay? Because he left you. You call the very people whose rules that you abandoned. And the strange thing is, at the end of all of that, when disaster strikes, we all pray, don't we? We all pray, God, would you just bail me out of this? You know, one of the interesting themes that we're going to find in the book of Judges is that every time the nation of Israel disobeyed God, every time they experienced disaster, and every time they turned their eyes to God and they said, God, we need help, this God that they've ignored, this God that they've embarrassed because they're supposed to be the nation of God, this God that they've disobeyed, this God that they've abandoned for these foreign gods is the very same God that stepped in and that delivered them every single time. And the great news is, listen, so as we think about this series and we just kind of think about maybe where we're at, where you're at in this cycle, the great thing about this is that God will step into the chaos. Even the chaos that we've created. So I read these stories in the book of Judges and you see the nation making these decisions. I look at that and I think, God, were you condoning these things that they did? Like, why did you interact with them at all? It's so evil, it's so horrible. And it, and it creates this cognitive dissonance sometimes for us when we read these stories. But what I leave experiencing as I read this is you look at that and say they made horrible decisions every single time. And the way that God's justice often plays out is in natural consequences. And yet God doesn't say, I'm never going to interact with you where you're at and cross his arms and turn away and look at them. Because then how right would you have to be in order for God to actually interact with you in your life? And it, and it makes me think about my own heart and my own life, the guys that, like the times that God has stepped in and responded to the chaos in my own world. Here's the question. This is where we're gonna go for the next few weeks. If, if you were God, if you were God, how would you respond to a group of people that had decided, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, where I wanna do it, with whom I wanna do it? And you can't tell me what to do. If you were God, how would you respond to that? I could tell you how I would respond, and it wouldn't be very gracious. How would you respond to that? Think about this. If you were a God that knew that every man for himself ultimately leaves every man by himself and alone from community, and if you were a loving God that knew every woman for herself, ultimately leaves every woman by herself, isolated from the rest of the world, what would you say? 
And if God is really a God that loves us, and if he's really a heavenly father, how would you expect him to respond to you? How would you expect him to respond to us as a community? How would you expect him to respond as a nation that increasingly seems to be leaning into the direction of, I've got my own moral compass, and I'm not really interested in yours. And then here's what kind of makes it interesting to me, is that in a few weeks, as a culture, we're all going to pause and we're going to celebrate the birth of a king. And we're going to pause and we're going to go, wow, and Jesus, and Bethlehem, and king, and Christmas, and star. And there's going to be this pause in our chaotic life where we're going to celebrate the birth of a king in a nation who's just like ours. And it's so interesting because that nation was more intent than ever, just like ours, in saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And how did God respond to that? It's interesting, isn't it? So why don't you join us next week for part two <laughs> of Right in the Eye. Let me pray for you, and we'll be done here. God, this is <laughs> such a challenging piece of scripture here, and there's so much going on, and it makes our, sturm, our stomachs churn um, to consider what such depravity looked like. And yet, in the stillness and the quietness of our own internal rumblings, we can see the chaos that has happened in our own lives when we've taken our fist, clenched it, and shook it at you and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And there's something that emerges through the pages of this tragedy that we're going to read that says there's a God that pursues, there's a God that gives second chances, there's a God that applies mercy, and ultimately... The God who knew that the condition of the human heart would not be resolved with laws or with human kings, but would only be resolved through God himself putting on flesh and showing us how it's done and then doing it for us because we're all like these sheep who have gone astray all of us in our own way and we have turned our back on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who did not respond in kind but responded with kindness that has led us to repentance. And it's rich and it's beautiful and it's disturbing and there's this tension <laughs> in the middle of all of it. Let us heed, let us hear and let us respond according to your spirit, we pray. Amen. Lots of K-cups out in the hallway <coughs> and hot water for tea. So please stick around and enjoy some fellowship with one another. And then at 1130... That's when we will um, pack up the chairs and go, and we would love to have your assistance with that as well. So, yes, stick around, and we'll start.
packing up at 11.30. Oh, yes, and uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, boxes. If you came in late and you have your Operation Christmas Child box sitting in the car, please go ahead and uh, go on out and grab it and bring it back in so that we can take care of that. But if you forgot it, remember, you can bring it next week. All right, that's it. See you guys next time. Thanks for coming out. <laughs>